The Christian life is often described in terms of paradoxes. Consider these two invitations of our Lord to follow him, for example. First, from Matthew 16. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now another, again from Matthew, this time chapter 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. These two invitations are quite different in tone and in content. The first implies struggle, suffering, and probably some some sort of death. The second one promises instruction, Christ's presence alongside us, because yoke always has two, and profound rest. This morning, I want to, as part of our focus on virtues and uh, of a servant uh, in ministry, explore the idea of Christian perseverance as the harmonizing and even the unifying of these two apparently conflicting aspects of discipleship. On the one hand, it is quite true that the life of discipleship is difficult. It's not a straight path going from A to B. It's not a dreamy floating along like a cloud from a generation to glorification. It involves effort, it involves suffering, it involves struggle, it involves disappointment, it involves combat with sin, and much more. Therefore, it's not surprising that the Christian life requires perseverance. On the other hand, think of the second invitation, following Christ is life-giving, because it's inseparable from him and from the gospel. Now, to start to put these two pieces together, the more clearly that we see our difficulty the difficulty of our Christian calling, the more readily we will seek and experience the grace and power of God as he sustains us, as he strengthens us, as he delivers us, ultimately, from the challenges and dangers which otherwise would be simply too much for us. To take the biblical image of a path, which David turns to shortly, uh, perseverance might be considered like a walking stick. It helps us uh, stay upright. It helps us stay on the path. It helps us move forward. on a path that obviously, again, is not straight, left, right, up, down, obstacles, stumbling blocks on our way to glory. So it's this paradox or this productive tension between our need on the one hand and God's supply of grace on the other that I want to think about with you from Psalm 142. If you notice the superscription, it gives you a hint uh, as to what what the psalm's going on about, so to speak, because it's written from a cave. What does one do in a cave? It's not a place for picnics, obviously. It's a place, especially in David's life, of refuge from a very present, all too present danger. Okay? The man, is, uh, his life is threatened. His last option, the list ends here, is a cave. Now, we're not sure when this was composed. David was, David was in a cave more than once. It could be the time when he was almost discovered by Saul, 1 Samuel 24, some other occasion. We don't know exactly which one, but a cave, so to speak, is a cave. More importantly, the theological context of the psalm is of God's anointed being persecuted, hounded to such an extent, as we've already read, that he's beyond the help of anyone except God himself. This is, to bring these two pieces together again, the crux of the psalm. And this is really the center, the heartbeat of David's life with God. To put ourselves now with him in the cave, will he interpret reality, this in extremis moment, I could die in 10 seconds in light of what he sees around him, or is he going to come back to God's promises to him specifically as a future king, 2 Samuel 7, or more generally as one of his children whom he will, in his own way, deliver? 
So David answers the question that I'm posing, hence I ask the question. With a lot of effort, he works through it in real time in this psalm, and a lot of honesty. So this kind of, this kind of response to an extreme situation which faith is tested invites our careful attention as we seek to follow Christ faithfully in ways that sooner or later, if you're not already there, will become plenty difficult. So let's take a closer look at the psalm. First, verses 1 and 2. Here we start to see these two poles, so to speak, around which the psalm builds its theology of perseverance. David's need, as expressed in his desperate prayer on the one hand, and the gracious, omnipotent God, to whom he addresses this prayer, on the other. So the psalm opens with four descriptions. We've just read them. They're piled on top of one another intentionally, of what David is doing, his petitions, and in and behind those, what he's feeling, what he's going through, what he's thinking even. We can't just boil these down and move on to, with some statement like David is presenting his petitions to the Lord. That's verses 1 and 2, and then on, as if this were an exhaustive summary of what's said here. God gave us his word in the form that it is. It's poetry. It's repetitive in a certain sense, and it invites, again, our reflection. So rather than boiling this down as an efficient exegete and moving on rapidly, let's stop and sit down, as it were, next to David in the cave and listen to him. So I've used the word frank already. David doesn't uh, sugarcoat what's happening to him. He doesn't close his eyes and just wait till it goes away in some kind of Zen mode. Um, he recognizes it for what it is. He'll translate it a little literally. With my voice, I call to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy. So we're already moving downward, kind of following the severity of David's circumstances. I pour out my complaint before him. My distress, I express to him. Here we start to see kind of behind the veil, so to speak, what's going on in David's heart. This very act of pouring one's heart out to God, let me suggest, is step one or involves step one of perseverance. The stiff upper lip is not going to cut it. Stoic indifference to our um, suffering is not a biblical response to the realities of life. The biblical model for navigating life, in other words, is very different. And it involves taking a very honest appraisal of one's own condition, of one's circumstances, and uh, walking through them with God's help and in his grace. If there's no need, obviously, there's no need for perseverance. Uh, if there's no difficulty, we don't need divine help. We can get through on our own. Thank you very much. But that clearly is not what David is planning to do. So David is already beginning the act of perseverance, I suggest, by simply expressing to God in petition his needs. We can find other ways of responding to difficulty in Scripture, but this is the one that I'm saying is normative. The importance of this frank presentation of his needs to God is all the clearer if we realize two things. One, he's not saying anything to anyone else. Now, he'll it's pretty hard to imagine that David was literally alone in a cave. It might have been, but we know typically he's with a couple hundred armed men and he's not alone. Nonetheless, the psalm is, in a very real sense, David and God alone in this cave. So David speaks to no, no one else. He mentions no one else, especially the second one. The fact that he doesn't mention his men is revelatory because it shows that in this cave, in all likelihood, with, with armed men with him, he has reached the understanding that there is no way out, even with these men around me. We are in the cave, to put it in those terms, and they can't get themselves out. 
Neither his own effort nor his brothers in arms can deliver him. Hence his focus, exclusive focus on God in his words, in his speech. So he begins where perseverance begins. There is no other suitable help for me. No one else is up to the task except God, and he turns to God. That's the initial orientation, and he's going to make some progress along those lines as the psalm develops. This doesn't mean, by the way, that David is against um, the counsel and help and encouragement of fellow believers, that there's no such thing in New Testament terms as the body of Christ. Quite the contrary. It does mean, though, on that point, that uh, if we are to help one another as members of the body of Christ, we do so best by turning their eyes to, slowly and patiently, the God who is ultimately their only help, and of course, accompanying that with appropriate actions and gestures in a given context. Finally, before we move on from these two verses, they show something of what David holds to be true about God, even though he hasn't brought it verbally out yet. Clearly, if he's speaking, he believes that God hears. He believes that God is good because God listens to those who are in need. He believes that God alone, because he's not talking to the men around him, so to speak, is the only one who's mighty enough to save him. And he trusts that one way or another, this will be worked out, uh, God will do what's best for David, and God will glorify himself as he fulfills his promises to David. So these things are, in a nutshell, kind of not yet germinated in the words that we read in verses 1 and 2. But as I'm hinting, this is just the first part of this first stage of David's developing perseverance. He's working it out. It doesn't come, he just, it's, it's not like these things that we learn, like two plus two is four, whatever. It's not a lesson I can go back to and pull ready-made out of the box for reuse. It needs to be redeployed, redeveloped every time. More strongly, more adeptly, one hopes, but it's not, once I've learned it, I'll just pull it out like a card subsequently. So the first half of verse three, if you look there momentarily, uh, tells us more about the specifics of his condition. And here we can we need to listen to the man because he is really um, in distress. His strength of soul is spent. Uh, King James puts it in terms of um, just remember, uh, his spirit being overwhelmed within him. Um, he's at the end of his rope, to put it colloquially. Um, he's on the verge of complete collapse, physically, spiritually, I presume even. Let me just note in passing that this should encourage us because this situation, even as extreme as it is, is not beyond God's help. So whatever your situation is or was or will be, it too is not so extreme that there's, there's just a category in which you are beyond God's reach. Those categories, thankfully, do not exist. So there is no situation, in other words, in which God's grace can't meet us and bring us through it. Just to remind ourselves what, what toxic elements went into this brew of uh, uh, that was David's life, Saul's lethal intentions. The man's been chasing him around, assuming that's we're somewhere in that spectrum of time, that, that slice of time, for a, a long time already. David's awaiting in an unknown time frame the fulfillment of God's promises to him. How many months, years will this be before these things are fulfilled? There's, of course, the constant physical stress and, and stress of being chased around uh, by someone who wants to kill you, and so on. So he's, uh, he's been worn down. That's where this psalm finds him. 
a cave, whether it was the lowest point around doesn't matter, but he is in terms of his life at a low, low point, weakened, battered, and um, almost alone. At the same time, I don't want to just focus on his emotions because these things are, as he himself will show us, determined theologically. They can be misdetermined with bad theology or they can be properly determined, that means set on the right course, by good theology, which is what David goes on about uh, right after. In the same verse, he admits that his spirit faints within him. Um, he goes on to say that, you know my path. Um, Again, just the timing. He's at the, we're not quite at the bottom of his descriptions because his descriptions go on, but not for all practical purposes. He's at the bottom of his, uh, the very bottom right now. And at that point, he reminds himself and God that God knows his path. Now, that may sound, sound rather abstract. A path is just a line. Let's suppose God knows it in the way that, yes, that path is there. That's not what know in Hebrew means. It means, in the case of God, exhaustive knowledge of David's path. And it is, to state the obvious, a path that God constructed for David with all the goodness and wisdom that is God's. So, hence, David says, and notice the pronouns, you know my path. It's very, very relational. There are only two people, so to speak, in this psalm. There's some others whom we'll exclude from view momentarily, but these two people are the two people who are in relation. This determines what the psalm is doing and what the theology of perseverance is that comes out of this psalm. So the objective fact that God knows his path has a subjective side. You could say it that way. God knows this path. It's David's path. It's not just a path. It's David's experience. It's what he's been describing, this path of suffering and abandonment and uh, lethal threats. So this confidence comes out here. It's also the foundation we realize now for the, the petitions that were already uttered in verses 1 and 2. You don't speak that way in verses 1 and 2 unless you know something about the person to whom you're speaking, which he now tells us a little bit he does know about the Lord. So, I'll use the word orientation or reorientation a few times. This comes from Walter Brueggemann, I think, uh, but be that as it may. The Psalms are very much about finding oneself in extremis and then, as I've already said, coming to a point of decision. We can either pack it in and just say, this is not what I signed up for, or we can see things as they really are in light of who God really is and follow him through them. So David is in the process of reorienting, reorienting himself, partially by saying things to God that also concern him. Um, but he's in the process of, in light of who God is, <coughs> interpreting the reality that he's living here and now. There's still more to be said, however, about David's uh, plight. This is the end of verse 3 and into verse 4. So verse 1, uh, David's expressing expectation, hope in God through these petitions, which nonetheless focus on his dire need. He's not out of the woods, or in this case, out of the cave yet. He's reminded himself that God knows exactly what happens is happening to him presently, and that he's not beyond God's sight or beyond God's care, but he's still in the cave. So, speaking of paths, uh, we read in the second half of verse 3 that it's on that very path which God has made, by the way. So, Job sometimes reacts differently than David does to these situations, but on the very path that God has set for Job, Job's enemies have laid traps, which are intended to capture him and eventually kill him. So this is 
again, something of a paradox in that this is the way that God ordains. It involves lethal threats. That's what it is. David is not sugarcoating what it, what it means to follow the Lord. It's, it's this dangerous on the one hand, and it's this good, as we will see in the rest of the psalm. And verse 4, talking of people who were temporally in view, but really not, um, the only people he sees around him actually are his enemies who desire to kill him the, at the soon as possible uh, opportunity. So this becomes so urgent, his, his experience of this has become so um, intolerable almost that he then... Um, draws God's attention to it. This is one of the things we do in prayer. It's, don't ask me for an explanation of it, so to speak, but it's, um, it is part of our prayers to bring things, so to speak, to God's attention. We know that he knows them, but he asks us nonetheless to make our requests known to him. He knows best why. Um, but here's what David says. No one takes notice of me. We're back to just, and he's not, he's excluding God from the, the group he's referring to. He knows that God does, but apart from God, no one takes notice of me. There's the, the word that's translated in um, the King James's refuge failed. It's actually the word for died. So any, any possible source of, of refuge has died and David is probably going to die next. There's, there's nothing left. This is the last option. No one cares for my life. So he's really without any possible deliverance except the God to whom he turns. So no one cares about the disordered reality. He realizes that his life is upside down. It's not supposed to be this way. He doesn't doubt that God is faithful to his promises, but he realizes that this is very, very far from their fulfillment, so to speak. No one cares for my life. But as we already know from verses 1 and 2 from these petitions, he's not entirely without hope. He's just unpacking for us what's gone into this per current experience in which he finds himself. So, for a full description of his situation and his attitude and how he's persevering in it, we can turn to verses 5 through 7, where we see, so to speak, the final stages of his reorientation to really bring closure to this moment of distress, um, he turns to God. So verses 1 and 2 was the initial turn to God, which was already obviously from a situation of distress. Now we've gotten further detail on the distress, and we realize as he again turns to God that he's really turning to God without any other option. Not that David really invested in other options and found them to be lacking, but he's found that in this case, it is a case of divine deliverance or none at all. So, his distress is at a peak. Remember the end of uh, verse 4, nobody cares about whether I live or die. It's at that moment again, at the, now really the lowest in terms of the Psalms' descriptions. This is the lowest point, perhaps, that he reaches. There's self-reorientation by God's grace. So, the both, both are involved, but the point is David's not just going to end here. He's not going to be passive. He's going to, as it were, take himself in hand and turn his head towards the Lord. So we get more of these pronouns. Uh, I tried to emphasize this when I read the text. I call out to you, O Lord. I declare that you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. 
contrary to appearances, to state the obvious. So God really is the only real consummate refuge. Now, David's still in the cave, mind you, and further along when presumably he will find himself out and doing other things. Now, on the one hand, this, this deliverance will come to him by God's actions, no doubt. But there's more going on here than simply expecting that God will get him out of the cave and deal with his enemies appropriately and so on. David's affirmation that God is his portion echoes God's promise to Aaron that he would be the portion of the tribe of the Levites who had no land in, in the promised land. So they're there, they're residents, but they don't have any, any title to land. Um, this is quite appropriate, actually, uh, for several reasons for David, because it, let's assume he was uh, soon to be king. It's, it's soon to be his land. He can't set foot on it without putting his life in danger. He can't go back to his family's land, which is theirs by rights, by divine allocation, because Saul will find him there. So he's in a land which he doesn't even own, though he's the future king. He can't return to his family's land. He has no land. Um, but more than just deliverance from those things is going on. God is his portion. Um, and it's not just, in other words, it's not just land that he wants to inherit. His, he says to God, you are my portion. There's, a, there's an inheritance of God in David's um, in the eye of faith. God is his in a cave, in the most unlikely of places, so to speak. When we thought he was lost in the depths of despair, um, the response is infinitely stronger, infinitely greater in importance than was the temporary, more or less simply physical danger that he's nonetheless rightly concerned about. Despite the stratagems of Saul and probably other enemies, the meek shall inherit the earth, to paraphrase the New Testament. But my point here is to emphasize that David is saying even more. He's not just inheriting the earth, he's inheriting God. Now, I think I said earlier something about reinterpreting or interpreting reality properly. This is what I want to help us do a little bit with the, with the help of the psalm, is to understand how does one who's fulfill, the, for whom the fulfillment of divine promises seems to be in jeopardy, has no realistic help and is still in the cave, say that God is my portion and, and, and the opposite of despair, so to speak. How does one arrive at that conclusion other than some pat phrase like, well, it's strong faith, which is true, but we're looking for a little more um, material here as we try to understand how David came to that strong faith. It relativizes, seeing God for who God really is, relativizes, like I'm just trying to say, this threat, small t, in comparison to the deliverance, large d, uh, which is his in God's and the inheritance, indeed, of God himself. So in terms of Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things that are not seen. Uh, the convic uh, things hope for the, the conviction of things not seen. Um, these things are more real to him than the cave he is in. So, on that foundation, and this is where it's interesting, David returns one more time to petition, a little, uh, verses 6 and 7, but he does so now on the basis of this very explicit foundation on which his hope is grounded and built. It's not just like, okay, this is my point of departure. God is his inheritance. End. So, in verse 6, uh, we have uh, three imperatives. I get to those in a moment. But we have, again, the point of departure of perseverance, which is my enemies are stronger than me. I am 
unable to get myself out of this situation. The same holds true for human help because he's not talking about the men who are with him or anybody else. He's not sending messages, he's sending prayers. We have again three imperatives now. There were two earlier in verse um, four. And they can be, they're probably imperatives to God, but anyways, look and see. Anyways, in uh, verses six and seven, we have three, which are clearly to God. Give attention to my cry, deliver me from my persecutors, and bring my life out of prison. What's new here, or explicit perhaps, is that in verse seven, this hope of deliverance is certain. He takes for granted that it is going to happen. Uh, this is the very last line of the psalm. You will deal bountifully with me. There's not a doubt. When, how, that's up to the Lord to determine. But with God as his inheritance, so to speak, deliverance is inevitable. It's certain. And, again, if we were tempted to think that David's just working this out in a very pietistic fashion without any believers around him, they come back in the picture, so to speak, in verse 7, because he anticipates that the righteous will see his deliverance and celebrate the Lord with him. So it becomes a communal celebration of God's deliverance of David that is nourishing and nurturing his exercise of perseverance still in the cave. So we go from alone in a cave with, that is not itself a refuge in which offers no refuge to God as his inheritance um, and anticipated deliverance in which others will celebrate with me God's greatness. That's the trajectory, that's the experience of perseverance, at least in this snapshot that we get of it from Psalm 142. So with these points in mind, uh, let's take a little time to reflect on the psalm and apply it to ourselves in the context of the gospel. First, to return to the basic idea of perseverance, it is not optional. Um, if, take the image of the path. If you're on the path, it is obligatory to move forward, okay? If you don't, in the biblical image of the path, you don't move forward, you don't get to the destination. This is not terribly difficult to understand. Uh, standing still is not an option. This is clear for lots of reasons. The path metaphor comes with it. If we look at it from the point of view of conversion, conversion brings new life. Life brings growth, movement, development. So hence the metaphor for the path. Um, Take discipleship. One follows Christ. It's not Christ is not a stationary uh, figure in, in discipleship. He's leading us on his way. So we move forward if we are to persevere. So being his disciples means, among other things, uh, learning day by day what it means to follow him. Very open category. And to be gradually made more and more like him, like him as we do so. To state the negative side in passing, if we're not moving forward, and particularly if we're not persevering, at all costs, with the right priorities, we are not yet his disciples. Second, this psalm shows us that perseverance is faith and work in that order. So behind our actions, including that of perseverance, of course, lie the ultimate grounds for salvation, election, regeneration, union with Christ, and so on. These things are God's unique prerogative. We can't bring them about um, their hits, but they produce in the believer, and here's where the, the active side of perseverance comes into view, in harmony with our efforts, a resolution to follow God wherever he leads by the means and with the grace he provides to the end of the path. So it's very important, as I've said, to interpret the, the realities of our lives in light of 
the gospel to unpack further what David is getting at in a nutshell in Psalm 142. That means, conversely, not to interpret our reality in terms of, um, let's, let's start with something banal, but some of us find ourselves here from time to time. We're in a cave, it's unpleasant, it's cold, it's dark. Metaphorically or literally, we can find ways to complain about where we are presently. Um, we could furthermore f interpret the fact that we're alone, literally or almost, uh, as just a sign that it's, it's just totally hopeless. In other words, there are plenty of data in our lives which, if misinterpreted, would become a fake foundation for distrust. That's the opposite of what perseverance calls for. Perseverance starts from certain convictions about God, about us and his relationship with us in Christ, and then interprets properly the reality around us. Not, not sugarcoating it as if this is a cave, this is wonderful, look at, you know, we're not going to lose ourselves and be, be uh, self-deceiving in terms of pretending that this doesn't hurt. Um, we'll interpret those things honestly as well. A couple of dimensions of this practice of trying to interpret things in light of the gospel in the context of nourishing and pursuing perseverance as we close. First of all, this has come out, but let me insist on it. Perseverance is very much relational. So this, this is not a, a prayer with no audience. This is not even just a horizontal conversation between David and his friends. It's primarily a vertical conversation that is part of a relationship between David and his God. Again, some negatives would be appropriate. It's not something we can muster up within ourselves. It's not a question of our will and steadfastness and creativity or whatever. It's not life tweaks. You can, I'm sure you could find 10 volumes more or less in that category at a local bookstore. Uh, it's not the latest pop trend in spirituality. Again, 10 books would probably be available at a local bookstore. Um, nor does it come, if you want to take the passive pietist, uh, wrongly termed pietist, uh, response, it doesn't just float its way over to me and land in my lap as I, as I receive it by simply asking for perseverance, and, but doing nothing, actually. It's a gift, if you will, that comes uh, as I seek it. Or to put it back in relational terms, perseverance is something that is only real in fellowship with God through Christ. So union with Christ, I've always found myself tempted to take that a little objectively, meaning without the subjective side. That's not the intent of the reality, to be sure. But let me just make that point clear uh, by reminding us that this is a communion kind of fellowship. It's a relationship. It's not just the fact that I am in Christ. It's living that in communion with him that makes it, so to speak, real in my experience. Um, that's essential to uh, being ready for troubles when they come. and by God's grace, in fellowship with him, going through them when we are in those depths. And we've seen this already. The, the, the psalm doesn't use New Testament language for obvious reasons, but nonetheless, this, this relational motor, this heart, is already very clearly visible in David's words. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. The, the bond is already there, covenantally. So these metaphors that we that we see uh, in refuge, um, help, uh, exhibit trust and deliver and dependence uh, upon a God whom David knows, and who knows David. Remember the sense of no. It's not yes, I know who he is. It's I know him. In God's case, I know David exhaustively. In David's case, I know God enough to be confident that even in this extreme situation, I ultimately have nothing to fear. From a New Testament perspective, we have further uh, encouragements 
to pursue this relationship, so to speak, for all that it's worth, to probe its depths, Christ the vine from whom we draw our life, Christ the light of the world in whom we can see, among other things, the fact that these difficulties come upon us as he shapes us slowly but surely in his image. And as the good shepherd, he leads us, Psalm 23 does this intentionally for sure, not only through pleasant pastures, but also through the valley of the shadow of death. And on the other side, we're invited to sit at a table to celebrate the shepherd king's victory. So it's, it's really, really, um, scripture's full of truths that nourish, nurture and nourish and feed a proper perseverance. So this is the essence, I'm arguing, of perseverance. The habit, the reflex, which over time and by grace becomes more and more natural to us to ask God for and to expect from him what we need in every situation, regardless of how desperate it seems or how difficult it is for us. Now, we will probably not find ourselves often in situations like David's. Uh, usually we will find ourselves in everyday banal situations, which might make us think that there's not a whole lot to do here really in terms of sanctification. That's actually not the case. If God puts you there, he has something that he wants to produce in you. Humility, patience, love, charity, forgiveness, uh, faith, and so on. Finally, perseverance interprets the events of our lives just to crystallize one of these points in light of God's utterly reliable promises and faithfulness in the gospel. He's demonstrated who he is and what he's done in Christ. He continues to pursue that in real time, and he will perfect it. So there's, there is a trajectory here. Indeed, in David's case, so to speak, from the cave to outside the cave. Um, the New Testament adds a great deal of color and depth to that. Um, let me just mention in passing the Heidelberg Catechism's uh, reassurance under the question dealing with providence that all these things come to us by his fatherly hand. There are all kinds of relational dimensions to our experience of very difficult things that when we grasp them properly, that God sends these things to us with love and as a father, enable us to live them as we should. What never ceases to strike me about providence is precisely this thing, and I'm going to uh, say a little more about challenges that one might have with that. Uh, it's parental, I mean, by someone who loves us, and it's pedagogical. It's meant to teach us something. It's for our good. It's not there to chastise us. Now, God does send certain things into our lives to chastise us disciplinarily if that's necessary. I'm leaving those cases aside. So every event in a believer's life, apart from those, especially hardship and suffering. So God's megaphone, as C.S. Lewis said, is intended for our good as long as we come to know God and Christ better through it. That's the goal. We can, we can miscarry the, the project. We can drop it halfway. Um, but nonetheless, that is the truth. This, for me sometimes, I will admit, is an inconvenient truth, that situation A, which I do not like and which I would like to be out of, is not going away, and I'm in it, and I don't have a choice. So what am I supposed to do? I can be angry at the situation or the people in it. Then I can find my sense of justice or whatever is violated and I will just fume. Or if I'm responsible for uh, creating the situation to some extent, I can be angry with myself and just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Stew in frustration. Worst of all, I could conclude that this situation is so compromised by especially other people's sins, of course, that it really can't bring me that much good. It's, it's really primarily, or at least to a significant degree, harmful. God forbid. When I find myself thinking along these lines, and if you do, several things need to happen quickly. I, we, need to repent of our arrogance in imagining that God, who is, let's remember, the creator of all things, uh, 
the beneficent guide who sets every detail in our path, every curve, every bump, has made a mistake. Who am I to, to even let that kind of half-evident supposition derive my interpretation of the situation? We need to repent, more simply, of doubting his goodness and of refusing to accept with arms at least as wide open as his grace will allow us at that point in time what he sovereignly and lovingly sends into our lives. This acceptance, as some of you know, can be very difficult. God sends us very difficult things in certain cases. So, in closing, let me encourage you to do as David did, to do as our Lord did, when in the most extreme situations. Empty your heart out to God. David in Psalm 31 reminds us of this. He sees your affliction and knows, the same word, the distress of your soul. Your every tear, to use a material example, every ache of your soul is known to God. He's the one who ultimately, moreover, can fix them. If you're doing this within a counseling context, so much the better. But your counselor will also do the same thing as ultimately pointing you to the Lord. And like David did, affirm to yourselves things which you are not adequately reckoning with right now. God is this. God is that. To me, for me, now. I'm convicted whenever I read Paul's words uh, in 2 Timothy as to how far the vision of perseverance goes. Uh, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What I like about this is that it doesn't jump over, but it passes through death, which this is a terrible thing. David doesn't want to die, but death is, as the catechism puts it, a, something like a passage to eternal life. Um, I'm saying our the horizon of our perseverance needs to extend that far if it's to be up to the task and biblically faithful uh, so as to help us suitably walk the path with our Lord. So, our rescue from hardship, from sin, from distress will be finished only when we stand before God, perfected, glorified, uh, enjoying and worshiping him forever. With that vision then before us, when we're confronted by difficulties that God, let me remind you, with unfailing love and tenderness sends into your life for your good. Press on with the strength that he gives you, that we seek, realizing that we have needs that cannot be met by anyone else. May he be glorified as we wait with calm confidence, it is possible, patient endurance, the appearance of our Lord and Savior who will bring us to the end of our course and into glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so full of compassion and grace uh, for those whom you are saving through your Son. We thank you for the renewing work of your Spirit. We thank you again for your word and ask that it would take seed in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. To your glory for our comfort, for the good of those around us. May they see uh, what it means to know God and to have you as our inheritance and to walk through the deepest trials with uh, the horizon that you paint uh, before our eyes. So through Jesus Christ, in whatever situation your providence places us, bless us and keep us. Make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lift up the light of your face upon us and give us your peace. Amen.